0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Each week for Spirit in Action, we bring you world healers, And that's work that can be done in many, many ways. Today's World Healers are doing it by harnessing and redirecting the power of the stories that have been the foundations of our culture. Our guest hosts today are Liam Hooper and Don Durham. Liam is a trans man who has taken control of his own story and provides insight and deep understanding about freeing ourselves and manifesting the divine in our lives. And Don is simply amazing, whether coaching to help people get where they want to go or by his work as Healing Springs Acres, giving away between six and eight thousand pounds of food a year, or whether informing people on how to end hunger with his Welcome to the Table podcast and with the Bible Bash podcast that Don and Liam do together. You may or may not have a view of religion and the Bible as manipulative tools to limit us and serve the man, but the Bible Bash co-hosts will help you be part of true liberation, seeing the world and yourselves in ways you've never imagined. I'm so grateful to have Don Durham and Liam Hooper sitting in for me today for Spirit in Action. Over to you, Don. Mark, thank you so
1: much for welcoming Bible Bash Podcast to the Northern Spirit Radio Airwaves again. We always appreciate being able to visit. And it's an honor for me to be here for the first time as the new co-host of Bible Bash to introduce two episodes. Uh, In these episodes, we talk about turning over tables, and Liam shares more about his theology of disappointment by listener request.
2: Hello and welcome. I am Liam Hooper, A trans, queerish, Jewish fellow, practical, mystic, and theological activist living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and this is the Bible Bash Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Don Durham, a hermit-like, mendicant farmer and cantankerous curmudgeon. Dog and I live on a small farm in North Carolina where I grow food to give away. I also host a podcast about what people are doing to end hunger. And I work as a strategy coach with folks who are trying to figure stuff out.
2: Well, hello, Don. We've made it through a couple of Bible bashes together, and here it is. Time to record another one. How are you doing these days?
1: Man, I'm doing great. Now that we're back at this. Indeed. This is one of the most fun things I do in a month's time, so, you know.
2: That's also true for me. It's definitely one of the most fun things I do. Doing all that contract writing work to um pay the bills isn't exactly full of entertaining moments.
1: Well, I have finished all of the spring field prep work. Uh I'm planting five times more area this year than I wow. ever have before. So I had a quite a I've had a lot more plowing to do than normal to get ready to plant.
2: Yeah, I've been enjoying the photos of you out there discing the ground. So On a happy note, even in our isolation, I believe it's your turn to reflect on a text.
1: I came here today with that same understanding.
2: Well, hallelujah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The text I want to look at, it's always been one of my favorite Jesus images where Jesus is flipping over the tables. I think formally it's often referred to as the cleansing of the temple. Yes. I, I refer to it as Jesus flipping over the tables. Part of why this was on my mind, I just saw an online conversation two, three days ago. And and somebody, I don't remember who, or I would drag their name into this, I just don't remember. But they had made the statement that if Jesus flipping over the tables is your favorite Im- image of Jesus, you have missed the gospel. Mm. Mm. To which they immediately and quickly got dragged all over social media by people saying, "Uh, no, actually... That That's like the pivotal point of the story that drives the whole narrative and ends up getting Jesus crucified. It's fairly central. To, so it's one of my favorite. Oh, but, but not
2: in all, John. It's not, it's not, not the catalyst John. for that's that. Right.
1: John. Yeah, not, a, not in John at all. Now, I, today I'm going to use Mark's version of it. I'll reference the others because John does include a detail that's a favorite of mine. Hmm. Uh, but we'll get to that. Let me just read the text from Mark. Mark chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 12. Now I'm going to start at verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Hmm.
2: I'm interested to see where you're going to go with this.
1: I'll tell you. Let me back into the conversation, though, by saying... One of the things I'm keenly aware of that I'm not aware of enough is how much anti-Semitism gets wrapped into a lot of Christian texts. Oh, yes. Now, you and I have our friend in common together in Asheville um, who who told us his um, life stories ranging all the way back from Holocaust to current day where he teaches and cares for part of the congregation there. He was the first person— who helped me hear how much anti Semitism is written into it? Now, I w- I'd be curious about your reaction to this. I hear that falling into two buckets. There's anti Semitism that happens because of how Christians have used the texts. Yes. And then there's also some anti Semitism written in that's reflective of the fractures that were happening in the in the community between the growing Christian community. And the remaining Jewish community in the day when the texts themselves were written. So some of it's baked in, some of it is by later use. Is that yes. how would you say that? Well, I would
2: say that there's a fine point on bucket number two, in that, at least until Constantine, for sure. I would say. I mean, there were some rumblings before that, but definitely by the point of Constantine, there is this entity we would call Christianity. Right. But when some of these things are perceived to have taken place, which is of course is before they were written, there's this narrative process churning and, and baking going on before they're actually written down. And so at that point it's sex of Jewish peoples. And so One of the things that gets hard to parse out in Christendom is like, when is the bucket two stuff, the stuff that was contextual at the time, when did that get introduced into the narratives? Because essentially, it was just different groups of Jews who this particular Jesus group of Jews wanted to start letting in non-Jews, as if that didn't happen already, like from the Exodus on. Like, there was some interesting stuff going on that we don't really know when those things are sort of baked into the text got baked into the narrative. Does that make sense?
1: Totally. And that's the jumping off point for what I'm going to do with this text because I. Oh, cool. Yeah. Groovy. (laughs) So (laughs) I I perceive my perception. I'm I'm not trying to speak for any body of scholarship, but my perception is that bucket, the, the bucket of the misuse of the texts is the much larger bucket.
2: I would I would be inclined to agree with you. All yeah. the the stuff is in the text yeah, but the misuse right. the misuse from the time Christians started right. controlling what Jews could wear and who they could marry is a right. whole other thing. Right, yeah. right,
1: right. <laughs> and and so but as so as those cultural struggles for dominance happen in real time, the documents that get written down are also also reflect the attempts to establish dominance. You know, yes. we're telling our side of the story. We're we're telling our side.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's chest beating going on there. Exactly. Yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah. And and there's shade being thrown. Oh yeah. Right. With right.
2: with a big tent sometimes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. So acknowledging all of that, I'm going to try hard not to actually get into that mud puddle. I just want to acknowledge it. Good. Because Yeah, I'm with you. Because I do need to say so one of the misuses of this text is to use it since Jesus was uh, overturning the tables and disrupting that economic practice of changing money and selling animals. We'll say a little bit more about why that was going on in a second. But that often gets portrayed as an as a carte blanche or, I mean, as, as a total en masse dismissal of or condemnation of the entire Jewish system. Right. The table becomes the table of Judaism. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a symbolic overturning of the whole sacrificial system. It's like, okay, you know, that's a bit much. I understand Jesus as someone who perceived himself as a good Jew trying to help his community be the best version of itself it could be. Yeah. A reformer from within, not an attacker who was trying to separate. Yes. I don't see this as an attack in any way on Judaism itself. It is a brilliant window into how good systems become corrupt. Hmm. Okay. We all love the Jesus image of flipping over the tables and sticking it to the man. Yes. But the money changers were legit supposed to be there. They were a legit part of the system because you have this deal where pilgrims are coming to participate in the life of worship of the community. And particularly at certain times of year, they're coming from farther away and prepared to make sacrifices. And those sacrifices are prescribed in form. And I'm not going to try to say a whole lot about that, but there's a process here. We've got instructions. We're we're not making this up as we go. And one of the things that had to happen, there was a necessary logistical function of changing money because they couldn't take the graven images of the Roman money into the temple. That had to happen. Right. That wasn't... That wasn't a bad thing. That had to happen. It was a thing that had to happen. If somebody traveled and needed to get an animal to sacrifice, they had some for sale there. That's a, that's a logistical process that was facilitating participation in worship. That's not a bad thing. In and of itself, no. Yeah, it's yeah. part it's of it's got to happen yeah. for the system to work
2: like it's supposed to under exactly. Roman occupation.
1: It's, it's like – Churches today, for example, you know, we've got all kinds of little things that have to happen in order for the visitors to be greeted or the offering to be taken up. And, yeah, sometimes that stuff becomes <laughs> like the ground of little petty Nicene kingdom building. Yes. Personal messes in a congregation.
2: Yeah. Like, you know, should congregate members know who gives what or should uh, that be an outside like, person? And, and should people you know, who or, give the most have more say? And,
1: yeah, all that stuff. Or does the person who's taken up the offer and always look at me funny when they go by and I feel like I need to say something to somebody about this? Like, oh, you know, uh, there's so many ways. (laughs) Yeah. Not to mention, okay, that's all just interpersonal stuff, but, you know, maybe there's somebody who lightens the plate a little bit before they turn it in. Yes. Stuff can happen, you know? stuff. Okay, so good things that have to happen that are a legit part of the process, we screw them up all kinds of ways. I think it's important, though, not to think of the money changers as the bad guys. They are participating in a system that has become less than the best version of itself and has actually become an impediment to worship rather yes. than a facilitation of worship. Yeah. Anybody who grew up in church, this is a favorite enough story that you've heard it. You don't need, but for those who may not be familiar with the story, just a little bit of background. All right. Folks are coming in to the temple. The prescribed offering in this case was either a turtle dove, maybe a lamb, but it had to be inspected to be approved of as worthy of sacrifice without blemish. Yes, be unblemished. Yeah. Being yeah. And so if it's it like wasn't, first
2: fruits, right? Right. Like you right did, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: You know, this is again, this is, we've got instructions for this. This is part of the process. We have to, we, we want to bring our best. And so it has to be an unblemished offering. There is a little bit of theological dilemma in that. This is Don speaking, not necessarily the text, but that unblemished animal that got to, like God still created that animal too. How do yes. we call that unblemished? Yes. How do you come up with the idea that there is an un unblem- that there is a blemished yeah.
2: offering? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My okay. people would have some questions yeah. about that for sure. Right, right. Yeah. Okay.
1: So- so like it's not like the, even though this is a legit process, it's not a problem a problem free process. <laughs> you know there are there are some things here to ponder.
2: Yeah, yeah. If if we're only worthy of God when we're handing over the very best of us, then what does that say about those right. moments where we're not at our best? Right? right? Like are we somehow are we somehow no longer worthy?
1: Exactly. So I think one of the other things that is a more obvious part of the history of the way this story is traditionally referred to is there had also come to be some questions about whether or not the exchange rates were quite fair. Yeah. When the Roman money was changed into temple money, I know I've been in too many Baptist churches, Liam. I know how this happened. It started out being a good, legit thing. We've got to do this money-changing thing because we can't have any graven images in there. We're just trying to uphold worship, right? Right. But we're still having to spend time and effort to do this, and we got we got to cover our costs. I mean, you know— Oh yeah,
2: takes capitalism, man. <laughs> right. Capitalism's
1: oh, so, you know, like, it's like you know, it started out as an innocent cost recovery strategy, and somebody came along and said, "Hey, you know, this works pretty well," and it just yeah. got to be where I can just see how it would develop in any given Baptist church that I'm. Oh thinking. yeah,
2: yeah. We got to pay like, our secretary. We, gotta yeah, pay. So yeah, we got yeah. So it's like you yeah. can
1: just see that getting expanded a little bit with each year's budget. You know, well, by the time Jesus comes along, he's like, "Okay, this ain't right." But that's all just background. The point I want to make is when this story gets told, it's often told as though these people are being taken advantage of in, in these transactions. I don't buy that. It, it's not like they're being don't fooled be, yeah. or lied to. Yeah, they know these what's going pe- on. Yeah. They know how much a turtle dove costs. They know what They know what their money – this is not the only place they change money. They know what the rates are. You know, there's not deception happening here. It's just pure out and out oppression, which is even worse. Yes. Because the reason they don't say anything yes. about it's like all Jesus did. Jesus did not come along and point out something people didn't know was happening. Jesus came along and said out loud, you know, it's BS that this is happening. I'm not going to participate. Yeah. I'm I'm actually gonna Jesus said what everybody else already. Yeah, he just said the quiet part out loud. And the quiet part was here you have people who just want to come participate in worship, but there are gatekeepers who get to say whether or not they get to do that. And if you upset the gatekeepers, you don't get let in. So you just go right along with allowing yourself to be mistreated. Yeah. By the exchange rate or by paying twice as much, you know, you raised a turtle dove and brought it with you. You know what a turtle dove's worth, but you go ahead and pay twice as much because you really came all this way and you just want to participate in worship. Yeah. You just want to be
2: right with God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so, but you got to satisfy the gatekeepers, unfortunately, in this case. And what it took to satisfy the gatekeepers was allowing yourself to be abused in these transactions. And Jesus comes along and says, okay, this ain't, this ain't cool. Starts turning over tables. Still my favorite image because it's not just Jesus being rambunctious. It's Jesus standing on the central core. Everybody's welcome to be here. Yeah, It's not okay to say you don't get to come in. You don't get to come in. You don't get to come in. Now, a lot of that happens happened and happens, but Jesus is saying, at least don't mistreat people. People are people and we don't all, you know, I affirm the rights of people to hang out with who they want to hang out with. But if I'm not welcome, tell me up front, don't pretend like I am and then mistreat me once I get there. And it feels like that's yeah. What what I really (laughs) go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I
2: was just going to say what I really like about how you're reading this is it's consistent with Jesus's quote. You know, like okay, so Jesus doesn't quote Torah very much, but when he does, it comes from certain sources every single time. They're Uh they're almost all circular in their referential. Point of view. Yes. Like they're all reinforcing the same perspective. And what he does here, I'm sure you're aware of this, is he blends Uh when he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's Isaiah 56. That's about eunuchs and foreigners, people who are not allowed in. That's right. So that's to your point right there. Right. Yeah. But then the next part, this whole den of robbers, comes from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, I think. Right. The issues there uh-huh. in both those texts are the prophets warning and calling attention to what God wants and what God, this God, this character of God that these people keep uh-huh. referring to throughout uh-huh. the prophets and throughout all of Torah. And most right. of the time these texts in the Christian tradition, right? They're talking about this character of God who reveals God's self in different ways at different times to different people and different people interpret that differently. That's just the nature of how this character shows up. But these two texts are pretty clear. You are not supposed to take from widows, orphans, strangers, and children. And, you know, like, I mean, you're supposed to take care of the set upon and the untended and the uncared for. Mm -hmm. That's what you're supposed to do. And Oh, by the way, those people you've said don't belong. These people with crushed testicles or, you know, some other such, they do belong. right. They do belong, right? Like, so Jesus is saying, if you're changing a money and you're inspecting animals is your way of keeping people out, there's a problem. And hello, this God you're making these sacrifices to has had some things to say about that.
1: It's not the Jesus that turns over the table that has lost sight of the gospel. No. It's the system (laughs) that supports yes. itself off the backs of the people it purports to serve
2: exactly that's lost
1: sight of the good news
2: exactly yes so to my mind here's yet another example of jesus being a good jew right yeah, jesus right. is going after yes the spirit of the law which is what all the prophets talked about exactly. all the prophets are saying that god says look i don't care about your your little sacrifices exactly I don't want your burnt offerings. What I want is for no. you to treat one another like I have suggested you should treat one another. That's I what don't I care want. care what it
1: says in your bylaws. Yeah. This
2: this is the way. Way, the, you can take your your church constitution and, and <laughs> put it somewhere, right? Like, I don't care about that. This is what I've asked you to do. And there was a time where we cut the animal down the middle and cut a, a covenant. Yeah. There was a time when we did that, where we had yeah. a contract. And now I'm holding you to the contract. Your part of the contract was you supposed to take care of widows, orphans, and be kind to the stranger and the foreigner because you were once strangers in the land and enslaved peoples. And I brought you out.
1: The important shade of hearing, I think, in that statement you just made is you're to help people. Because of who you are, not because of who they are. Exactly. Because it's, it's what
2: I have called you to do, and it's what's in you to do.
1: Yeah. So I think this is an important text. In a day when we are asking all kinds of questions of all kinds of institutions and how well they go about caring for those they purport to serve. Yes. Versus abusing them. Think about poverty porn. You know, just that one idea of of all the uh, – listen, I've spent my whole life in the not-for-profit world. I'm a fan. A lot of good happens there. But there's also a lot of exploitation that happens. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The system is built on exploitation. There's a a degree to which we always have to be interrogating, unfortunately, not just the organizations around us, but even ourselves. Exactly.
2: And there's a place at which do-gooders – of yes. all kinds, right, even the champions of the lost and the set upon and the forgotten and the intended exploit them on many levels mm-hmm. we trans people in particular know that mm-hmm. we know that really well when the big organizations with the big budgets get all the money mm-hmm. while they're telling our sob stories right. You know, one of the things that we try to do with this podcast and one of the things I and my colleagues try to do in our work is stop the trauma tourism, right? Stop the doom and gloom narratives and stop exploiting.
1: That's better than poverty porn. Yeah.
2: You know, trauma porn too, right? Like the worse your story is, the more people beat off to it. And then tell our, consume our stories. Don't just have us come tell you our story. Learn from it. Be changed by it and then go tell your transformative story. Stop telling our story and stop consuming us. Help us get in the mix, get in the street, get in the institution lobby and ask for better treatment of all our siblings, all our relations. I think the point you're making is absolutely on target and stellar. And what's really wonderful is it's coming from you on this podcast, <laughs> not me, I'm not, right? Like it's I'm coming not sure how from. How to take that? that, that well, what I'm like saying is that's why. Right that's why I will like doing this work with you, right? Because Thank there you. are people who you consider your allies because they love you and they, you know, they're there to sort of pick, help you pick yourself up and dust yourself off, and they want to do better, right? And then there are co-conspirators and accomplices. <laughs> People who will not only help you plan the revolution, they'll they'll walk beside you and maybe get in front of you when the chairs That's, start uh, flying. I consider you to be that guy, right? Like you're that guy.
1: I'm not going to say anything about the conversation, but I think you and I were having a conversation the other day in which you expressed something frustrating. And my only response was, who do we need to go see?
2: Yeah. Who do we need to pay a visit to? Exactly. Oh, man, I love you. I love this show. <laughs>
1: What are you, hey, part of the deal here is you're supposed to bring a text as well. uh, I what have it. you got? yeah,
2: I am you're right, and I did. I've been spending a lot of time with really heady, heavy, beautiful poetry from like Dr. Joy Layden and others, okay. and I started feeling myself as I was working on my own regenerative um small space garden. Started feeling a call back to some Mary Oliver for a little minute. And I'm not going to do one of the classic go-tos that everybody, you know, everybody got their, their Oliver porn too, right? Like the same <laughs> yeah. poems recycled over and over because it makes us feel good about ourselves.
1: Well, I need to break out of that, of that small circle. So lay something on me.
2: This is from DreamWork, and it's called Morning Poem. Every morning the world is created. Under the orange sticks of the sun, the heaped ashes of the night turn into leaves again and fasten themselves to the high branches and the ponds appear like black cloth on which are painted islands of summer lilies. If it is your nature to be happy, You will swim along the soft trails for hours, your imagination alighting everywhere. And if your spirit carries within it the thorn that is heavier than lead, if it's all you can do to keep on trudging, there is still somewhere deep within you, a beast shouting that the earth is exactly what it wanted. Each pond with its blazing lilies is a prayer heard and answered lavishly every morning, whether or not you have ever dared to be happy, whether or not you have
1: ever dared to pray. Liam, thank you for those beautiful words from Mary Oliver. And thank you for listening and allowing us to share this portion of your day with you. Now. Back to Mark helps meet with spirit in action.
0: You're only back to me for a moment because I wanted to remind you of all the ways that you can connect with spirit in action and Northern Spirit Radio. Our website is northernspiritradio.org with links to all of our guests of the past sixteen and a half years, and also today's guest hosts Don Durham and Liam Hooper, Bible Bash, Welcome to the Table, Ministries Beyond, Welcome, and more post a comment on the Northern spirit radio website. When you drop by and consider supporting us by donating, we depend on you, not the government or the corporations because it's you who are serving. And we get tremendous help from the truly independent media, like the 42 or so community radio stations that carry our spirit in action and song of the soul programs. Remember to help them out with the aid of your hands and your wallet right now. Back to Bible Bash and today's guest host for Spirit in Action, Don Durham and Liam Hooper.
1: Thanks again, Mark, for inviting us to visit with your listeners at Spirit in Action. As I mentioned up front, the second episode that I brought today contains a discussion by Liam of what he calls his Theology of Disappointment. This was in response to a special request by a listener, and it's special for another reason as well. This episode was from the only face-to-face recording session that Liam and I have been able to have during this whole season of quarantine. No matter what your experience of quarantine has been like, it's likely that you've also experienced some disappointment along the way. So we hope this conversation is helpful. Here's another episode of Bible Bash. Liam, it's great to have you here, man. It's great to be here, man. We should let folks know this is the first time that you and I are recording in the same space.
2: Yes. It is our living through the COVID come to record (laughs) on the farm. Right. Yeah. It's pretty exciting, isn't it?
1: It is. I can
2: almost see you too above the I know, um, we've got sound sound baffling panels.
1: Yeah, all over the room and we can almost see each other. But we are in the same room. And I understand that uh, to mark this momentous occasion, you've brought us a text.
2: I have indeed. I have indeed. You may remember when we did your intro to everybody, and I presented a little piece of a text. I was referring to Joseph and his reconciliation with the family, and how that was a text that was important to me in a lot of ways, but it was the text I had given. For an answer, when Rabbi Josh asked me during my Beit Deen at at conversion, Uh when Rabbi Josh asked me during my um, conversion meeting with the rabbis, known as a Beit Dean, asked me if I had a a theology of disappointment, something that would carry me through when the institutions disappointed me. You remember... we, we talked a, about this a little a bit. What a powerful
1: question. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. and
2: Well, I have a confession to make. Truth be known, I haven't stopped thinking about that question since he asked me, and I keep coming up with these. I'm making lists, right, of all I, these texts. That, I have a um, confession, too. Yeah.
1: I haven't stopped thinking about it since you shared it with me. I'm, well, I'm glad you're going to talk more about it.
2: <laughs> I am. And, right. you know, who knows? I may even have another book in me. On this, but anyway, in the meantime, while I'm making this list because I can't stop thinking about it, I got an email from one of our listeners asking me coming out and asking if I would share a little bit more about my theology of disappointment, yeah, yeah, and so today, I'd like to talk about Genesis three. Now, I just want to acknowledge right up front that one little chapter uh-huh. Is a big, big, big piece of theological work. There's, it's a big piece of storytelling work, even, and there's a lot right, there. Yeah. There's a lot there to unpack, as you know. But I don't want to do that today. I want to focus on a really pivotal point for me in the story, the actual story, not the stuff that people tend to label as the theology of the story.
1: You know what, Liam? That's kind of what I've come to count on you for. Lay it, <laughs> lay it on us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, good, good. Yeah. So as the story goes, for for those people who aren't familiar with it, God has created these earth beings and set them to, to live in the Garden of Eden. And they're there doing their garden thing, and Eve is wandering around the garden one day and comes across this serpent. And the serpent engages in conversation with her and says, you know, I understand you can't eat everything that's here. And she proceeds to explain, no, it's just this one tree. So they have their little interaction. The serpent tells her, you're not going to die when you eat this fruit. You just will become like God. You will know the difference between good and and what people usually translate as evil, even though that Hebrew word really just kind of means bad. You can think of it as the not good. Those things that aren't so great, right? She's the fruit. She gives it to Adam because it's good and it's tasty. And it's, you know, it's good. They share it and they both realize that they're naked. They fashion for themselves clothing from fig leaves and whatnot. And they cover up, you know, all the parts that makes them aware that they're naked. And then... God, this character God, actually comes walking through the garden. Some translations say in the cool part of the day or in the evening or in the breezy part of the day. But it really, it's in the Hebrew, it's kind of like breezy, cool, Mm -hmm. sort of together. It's this lovely image. God's walking through the garden and says, where are you? So God comes seeking them out, looking to be in conversation with them and actually ask where they are, which is also kind of a way of saying, you know, what's going on? What are you up to? Adam says, you know, I I heard you coming. I knew you were here. And I was afraid because we did this thing you told us not to do. And I was naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? Mm. Right. So it's clear the world has changed. They ate this fruit. Things are different now. Right. They have this conversation where God lays out what people often refer to as the curses, right? There's another way to read that which maybe someone will ask us to get into. But I don't want to get into that today. I want to get to the what to do when the world changes and things are disappointing. Part. Right. They go through that whole thing and God actually fashion for them clothing and clothes them. God makes for them clothing and helps them dress. So this is like this really beautiful moment where they've done exactly what this God character tells them not to do. And God comes looking for them to be in relationship with them, to have this conversation about choices and consequences and how we're supposed to be and all of that. And then no matter how upset God might have been with them, we don't know. God puts clothes on them that God makes for them. Now, crazy as it might sound on one level, this story has meant a lot to me my whole life precisely because of this. This idea of the maker of the cosmos and humans walking through the garden looking for them. After they've done this thing that they've been expressly asked not to do, God comes looking for them. And then... Knowing, you know, what has happened and being a little disappointed in them. Right. God cares for them in such a way that God literally sews and fashions clothing for them and takes care of them. And even though God says, "Okay, look, the world has changed a little bit. You can't live here in the way that you were before. I'm going to send you to this other place. God still gives them place. God shows them where it is. You know, God takes care of them. And what this story says to me is no matter how south things go, even when I personally screw them up, right? Like even when I create hard consequences for myself and when it may seem like nobody wants to come in the garden looking for me, what I know is that God is there. I may not know it, but God's walking around in the world around me seeking me out, looking to be in relationship with me, willing to have the conversation about this thing we humans engage, where we make choices and decisions and we make actions, and there are outcomes from those actions, like things happen. It's just this natural law of consequences in the world we live in. And sometimes those things are disappointing, right? Like, sometimes I imagine God is disappointed in our behavior. I know there are times when I'm disappointed in myself, right, where others may be disappointed in me and the things I have done. And yet God still comes into the garden or the new garden east of Eden looking for me, willing to sit down and have a conversation with me about the things that have made me disappointed or that may have even caused God to be disappointed in me. And that, to me, is some really beautiful stuff. God is this relational being who created us into relationship. Right. And then wants to keep showing us how to do that, right? And wanting to learn about that with us, right? Like, I can see God going, hmm, you know, I didn't see that coming. you know right like I didn't I didn't see them doing that and yet here they've done it and now what do we do right
1: you know okay so two things jump out at me as I as I hear you talk through that one is the keeping on wanting to aspect of God in Mm. the story but the other thing that really jumps out at me is that at the moment in the story when comfort comes it does not come in the form of fixing the problem or erasing the consequences or anything else it's not an erasure of the consequences it's a response to the reality of the consequences exactly the clothing is provided we're still where we are we're not going to make any of these consequences go away whatsoever that's really not what life looks like but care can happen in the midst of that and take a form that's responsive to the consequences
2: Exactly, right? That's what or, I
1: heard you say. I don't yeah. know if that's what you meant to
2: say. Yeah, and not only that, but no matter how bad it is, yeah. right, God at least, even when it feels like no one else wants me, or when the world is so just crappy, I'm not so sure I'd want them either, right? Like The, the implication is that God still wants me, that there's nothing I can do. Uh-huh. That will come between me and God in that relationship if I'm open to it. Right. Like, so the other thing I hear is Adam heard God and hid and hid. Right. But knew God was there. Right. Yeah. So if we're willing to listen and to come out when when we hear God say, where are you?
1: You have to decide how you're going to ask theological questions about the nature of God based on this story. Yes. Because either Adam was able to hide from God, which says some things about God. Yes. Or God is the sort of caregiver who's willing to play along with your need to hide Mm -hmm. until you're ready not to.
2: That's, yeah. To me, that's the beauty of the whole story, right? It has a whole lot to say about God's relational nature yep. and our relational nature right like i find it hard to believe that uh-huh. this god this character who fashioned the entire cosmos and these human beings doesn't know where they are right. i think god knows exactly where they right. are right like yeah. this yeah, character yeah. knows what god is doing is the thing your parents do if you had good parents when you when you screwed up and now you're like oh crap right what yeah. have I done, and and how do I make this right? You know, they say what what'd you do when they know full well what you did, right?
1: Or and, and then when you tell them and they know it's a it's a screwed up bald faced lie, they're like, oh really? That okay? Yeah.
2: Yeah, whatever <laughs> you, know, you say, son. This- you know,
1: what, what yeah.
2: There's this
1: thing about something more effective rather than correcting it. Okay, let's just let you take a couple more steps in that direction and see what
2: happens. (laughs) Right, and you can, you know, like, think about that really wise friend you have who says to you, so how's that working for you? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm going to let you sit. I got friends who will say, I'm going to let you sit in that lie you're telling yourself, and I'll, you know, I'll sit there with you. God love I'm them. not sure it's helpful, but I'll do it because <laughs> right. I love you, right? And right. that's what I get from this story, right? Like, God loves these people, yeah, no matter what they do. And that says to me, too, kind of like my Joseph story, maybe this is how we're supposed to love each other, right? Like, yeah. that things may be bad. Like, we may have done something, and now everything has shifted. And we know that's true, right? Like, there are things... Every day in the world, in my world anyway, I don't know about Mm -hmm. other people's worlds, but Mm -hmm. things happen throughout the whole day where I'm not the same anymore. Yeah. Right? You know, the old saying, the same person never steps twice in the same stream, right? You know, we engage in interactions in the world. We make choices, we make behaviors, and things change. And sometimes they change and we can't ever go back to the way they were. Sometimes we don't need to. Like, we're better off not Mm -hmm. going back. But in any case, this God, my God, the God I envision, comes looking for me in the hardest of times. And it's me. It's in my mind if I think God's not there. Like, God is there looking for me. And all I have to do is enter that relationship and enter that conversation.
1: You reminded me of a song by a guy named John Hyatt. Uh, who's an old Americana singer from a couple decades back. And he's got this song called I Ain't Ever Going Back Again. And that is every other line of the song between memories of this woman to whom he's never going back is that refrain, I ain't ever going back again. It's like, dude, you ain't left yet. Yeah, he's
2: he's still there, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, you know... I'm sure that as time goes on, I'll have more texts that relate to my theology of disappointment. And I remain ever grateful to Rabbi Josh for asking me that question. Because, you know, what I also know is that most of my theology has actually arisen from really, really hard times in my life. Not just disappointment, but utter despair. And that those have been the moments that have Not just given me the working theology and the functional theology I have, but that that mark my life, right? That even in the midst of that, I still found a way to keep getting up every day.
1: I remember professors in seminary saying, "If your theology does not yet." Address the Holocaust and the hospital room. You're not nearly done with your theology yet.
2: Yeah, and it ain't done with you either. Exactly. Right. Like it's something is going to (laughs) happen.
1: That's the perfect response to that. Yeah. (laughs) Something is going to happen, man. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's my. That's probably the beginning of my theology of disappointment, and I'm, I'm sure I'll have more as we go along. I hope that our listener touches this, and maybe we'll enter some more conversation about
1: that. Well, I hope so, too, because I I was a listener curious about that as well. It's a a conversation worth having more of.
2: I think so. In the meantime, though, I believe you have another text for us, don't you?
1: I do. And I didn't know what you were going to say, but I did know you were going to talk about this theology of uh, disappointment, and it reminded me of a passage from another really good book that I've been reading. It's called Transforming Proclamation, A Transgender Theology of Daring Existence. Now, you know who wrote this, right?
2: Yeah, dude. Are you actually going to read from my book? <laughs> I am. <laughs> I just want listeners to know I did not like pay you or slide you a no, ten spot to do that, man. <laughs>
1: not, as a matter of fact, you didn't know I was going to do it. But I knew what you were going to talk about. And it reminded me of what I thought was a very touching paragraph where you're talking about your grandmother. Mm-hmm. I think back about some of the reflections that I have about having the patience in life to deal with disappointment, and it often comes from watching some of the older people around me navigate things, mm. and so I'm curi- I'll am i be curious to hear whether or not you hear any connections between this passage the way I did. The point is, grandmother was teaching me a life way. She was passing down wisdoms, insights, and lessons about life and living that she had gleaned from her own experience and from the Scottish Creek Indian Muscogee grove-born wisdom and knowledge-way traditions passed on to her. Looking back through my memories with more attentive vision and perspectives, I wish I remembered more than I do. Grandmother was not only a wisdom and memory-keeper of a kind, She was also a teacher of all sorts of mystical, magical things. She sounds like a wonderful person.
2: She was something else. You're going to make me a little misty. Uh But she, uh, grandma was, um, a pretty amazing woman, and what I what I don't tell in the book is that she lived through heart disease that she developed later in life, but uterine cancer, then non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Back when back in the day, when radiation was from cobalt machines, and those things were huge and so toxic, they had to be in their own room. Right, right, and they yeah. tattooed you where they were going to shoot you with the radiation, and, and literally pointed it through a window like a glass window. And she would drive herself all the way into Phoenix, which was a long drive. For these radiation things and then come back home. You know, and then she got ALS. And obviously, you know, she didn't live through that, but she would. so what I'm saying about that is yeah. grandma had some disappointment, right?
1: You did get to observe her dealing with quite a lot,
2: right? Yeah, quite a lot and she never ever Stopped finding things to be happy about. Yeah. And I was stunned and amazed by that throughout my entire life while she was alive. Um, thanks for sharing
1: that. Well, thanks for writing the book. I, I'll i confess I have not yet finished reading it, but I've gotten that far. And it's one of, it, Liam, you're good at this. You should keep writing books.
2: Well, um, that means a lot to me, brother.
1: And I'll tell you what I think so far is powerful about it is the... Well, like you said on the front end, you always go for story. And the way you've woven your own story and experiences and your reflective revelatory thoughts about those into uh, rigorous academic observation, whether you claim it or not, <laughs> then <laughs> you can't help yourself whether you claim it or not. That's, that's how you do what you do but the way you the <laughs> way you blend those two things uh so effortlessly it really is a work of art so and thank and, you, and, and li- listeners li- listen Liam, i swear he didn't know i was going to say any of that he didn't pay me to say any of that go get a copy of his book
2: thank you you're yes, welcome i appreciate that and we'll be interested in your thoughts if you do look at it
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, no, exactly, i hope yeah. you enjoy it right, right well and let's mention in that vein Liam there are all kinds of uh, easier ways to get in touch with us now?
2: Yes, that, there That are, are worth
1: drawing special attention to. Uh, go to BibleBashPodcast.com and just take a look. You'll find ways to get in touch with us there. You'll find ways to listen to old episodes. But we are trying to make it easier for you to interact with us to talk about text you want to listen to, um, topics you want to hear talked about, books you want to read from Liam, whatever it is you want to get in touch with us about. Thank you, man.
2: Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. It's really nice to be here with you on the farm,
1: too. Thanks, Liam. That was a really fun day of recording. And thank you for listening. And hey, while we're here, if you've got a minute, I'd like to let you in on a secret. I'd like to let you peek behind the curtain at Bible Bash and give you an idea of why Liam and I have these conversations about sacred texts from a decidedly trans and queer-affirming perspective. Listen, we understand that having conversations at the intersection of spirituality and sexuality and every other nook and cranny of who you are as a person, especially when those conversations involve people that you care deeply about or when those conversations happen in reflection on the sacred texts that you hold dear— Well, that's a lot to navigate. Maybe the conversation that you need to have is about how to stay in a meaningful and loving and encouraging relationship with someone you know and care deeply about that you're in the process of coming to know all over again. Now that they've been honest with you about how they experience the world in terms of their own perspective on spirituality and their own experience of sexuality. Maybe you're trying to figure out how to do your dead level best to keep being a good friend, a good sister, a good brother, a good parent. And maybe you haven't ever had a reason to have those conversations out loud before, and it's a lot to navigate. Liam and I hope that in listening over our shoulder, you can find your own words to say the things that you need to say to the people that you care about. Or maybe you live in a community with people you care about that has always been religiously oriented and There are sacred texts that you care about and that have defined that experience for you, and maybe you're in the process of coming out to yourself or to your community as gay or non-binary or gender non-conforming in some way or trans, whatever experience you're having. If you've decided that you need to begin to talk openly and honestly about that experience with people in your life who matter to you. Liam and I hope that there's also something in these conversations for you that helps you find the words to express your experience. It can be done. Yeah, it is a lot to navigate, but that's why we have these conversations. And Mark, that's why we're so grateful for an opportunity to visit with you and your listeners here at Spirit in Action. Thanks so much for having us for another visit. We look forward to coming back.
0: Thank you, Don, and I look forward to having you back soon. Besides informing and enriching our listeners, you freed me up to spend a bit more time with my grandsons the past three days. Truly, you're opening doors and windows into and out of the stories that have shaped so many of us, releasing us from limiting interpretations that have badly served us by serving someone else's objectives and prejudices. You are both gems and shining examples. And like I said, folks, we'll have Don and Liam back soon, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.
1: With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our